our historian writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And he says, Then Jeroboam, that is Gideon, and all the people who were with him rose early, camped beside the spring of Herod. And the camp of Midian was on the north side of them by the hill of Morah in the valley. The Lord said to Gideon, The people who are with you are too many for me to give Midian into their hands. For Israel would become boastful, saying, My own power has delivered me. Now therefore come, proclaim in the hearing of the people, saying, Whoever is afraid and trembling, let him return and depart from Mount Gilead. So 22,000 people returned, but 10,000 remained. Then the Lord said to Gideon, The people are still too many. Bring them down to the water, and I will test them for you there. Therefore, it shall be that he of whom I say to you, This one shall go with you. He shall go with you. But everyone of whom I say to you, This one shall not go with you. He shall not go. So he brought the people down to the water, and the Lord said to Gideon, You shall separate everyone who laps the water with his tongue as a dog laps, as well as everyone who kneels to drink. Now the number of those who lapped, putting their hand to their mouth, was 300 men. But all the rest of the people kneeled to drink water. The Lord said to Gideon, I will deliver you with the 300 men who lapped and will give the Midianites into your hands. So let all the other people go, each man to his home. So the 300 men took the people's provisions and their trumpets into their hands. And Gideon sent all the other men of Israel, each to his tent, but retained the 300 men. And the camp of Midian was below him in the valley. Now, the same night, it came about that the Lord said to him, Arise, go down against the camp, for I have given it into your hands. But if you are afraid to go down, go with Purah, your servant, down to the camp, and you will hear what they say, and afterward your hands will be strengthened, that you may go down against the camp. So he went with Purah, his servant, down to the outposts of the army that was in the camp, now the Midianites and the Amalekites and all the sons of the east were lying in the valley as numerous as locusts, and their camels were without number, as numerous as the sand on the seashore. When Gideon came, behold, a man was relating a dream to his friend. And he said, Behold, I had a dream. A loaf of barley was tumbling into the camp of Midian, and it came to the tent and struck it so that it fell and turned it upside down so that the tent lay flat." His friend replied, This is nothing less than the sword of Gideon, son of Joash, a man of Israel. God has given Midian and all the camp into his hand. When Gideon heard the account of the dream and its interpretation, he bowed in worship. He returned to the camp of Israel and said, Arise, for the Lord has given the camp of Midian into your hands. He divided the 300 men into three companies and put trumpets and empty pitchers into the hands of all of them with torches inside the pitchers. He said to them, Look at me and do likewise. And behold, when I come to the outskirts of the camp, do as I do. When I and all who are with me blow the trumpet, then you also blow the trumpets all around the camp and say, For the Lord and for Gideon. So Gideon and the hundred men who were with, who were with him came to the outskirts of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch. 
when they had just posted the watch, and they blew the trumpets and smashed the pitchers that were in their hands. When the three companies blew the trumpets and broke the pitchers, they held the torches in their left hands and the trumpets in their right hands for blowing and cried, A sword for the Lord and for Gideon. Each stood in his place around the camp, and all the army ran, crying out as they fled. When they blew three hundred trumpets, the Lord set the sword of the one against another, even throughout the whole army. And the army fled as far as Beth Shittah toward Zerorah, as far as the edge of Abel Maholah by Tabath. The men of Israel were summoned from Naphtali and Asher and all Manasseh, and they pursued Midian. Gideon sent messengers throughout all the hill country of Ephraim, saying, Come down against Midian and take the waters before them, as far as Beth Barah and the Jordan. So all the men of Ephraim were summoned, and they took the waters as far as Beth Barah and the Jordan. They captured the two leaders of Midian, Oreb and Zeb. They killed Oreb at the rock of Oreb, and they killed Zeb at the winepress of Zeb, while they pursued Midian. And they brought the heads of Oreb and Zeb to Gideon from across the Jordan. Now, as we look at Judges chapter 7 tonight, we'll see how the Lord delights in using weak instruments for the sake of his glory. We'll see how the Lord encourages and strengthens the weak and we'll see the victory that the Lord brings. And so we'll see that the Lord uses the weak, the Lord strengthens the weak, the Lord brings victory. So first of all, we see that the Lord delights in using weak instruments for the sake of his glory. We saw this theme already a couple of weeks ago when we were back in chapter 6, where Gideon was first introduced to us, and we see this theme continued here. Now, of course, there at the end of chapter 6, Gideon had gathered together the men from his own clan, the Abiezrites, and also men from the rest of the tribe of Manasseh, as well as the tribes of Asher and Zebulun and Naphtali. And the Lord had given to Gideon and to those who were with him, therefore, two signs that he would deliver Israel through Gideon from the hands of the Midianites. And we saw how the first sign was that the fleece soaked up all the dew and the ground around it was dry. The second sign was that the ground was soaked while the fleece was dry. And so now we begin chapter 7, and we find Gideon's army camped there by the spring of Herod. There were 32,000 of them. And by the hill of Morah, which was perhaps two or three miles away, was the camp of Midian. Judging from the numbers that are given to us in chapter 8, verse 10, it seems that there were 135,000 of the Midianites. And so if you do the math, Gideon's army was outnumbered at a ratio of greater than four to one. But what does the Lord say? It says in verse two, the people who are with you are too many for me to give Midian into their hands. For Israel would become boastful, saying, my own power has delivered me. This is bad. The Lord wants none of that. He doesn't want there to be any confusion. He wants them to know that when the victory comes, it was because of him and not because of superior military strength. Even a one-to-four ratio favoring the Midianites is not sufficient in this case for uh, the Lord's glory. He doesn't want any confusion. And so to avoid the confusion, the Lord commands Gideon to announce that everyone who was trembling or who was afraid could leave. And this was actually in line with the manner of thinning out the army that was already given in the law in Deuteronomy chapter 20, verse 8. 
where we read, Then the officers shall speak further to the people and say, Who is the man that is afraid and faint-hearted? Let him depart and return to his house, so that he might not make his brother's heart melt like his heart. And there in Deuteronomy 20, there were, there were several things that the commanders of the Israelite army could say to their men. If one has just gotten married, or you know, there were a few things, and one of them was, Who is the man that is afraid? He can leave. And so Gideon announces that the one who was afraid could leave, and 22,000 do so. More than two-thirds of the force take this chance to leave. And again, the Lord says, verse 4, the people are still too many. And so down to the water they went for the test. Those who knelt down to drink were the vast majority, and those who lapped the water with, uh, with their tongues, seemingly they, they cupped the water up and lapped with their tongues, were in the small minority. Now, sometimes there's been much that has been made of the difference in which these two categories of men drank, as if the ones who cupped the water with their hands and lapped were somehow more vigilant and more watchful and therefore better soldiers, more worthy. And some might by this go on to say that this is an example for us, that if we would be used by the Lord, we can't be like those fleshly mindless majority who just threw themselves down on the ground to to drink and weren't keeping a watchful eye on the situation at hand. I don't really think that's the point that is being made here. The point seems to be that the army was too big and the Lord wanted to thin the ranks down and this was the way that he chose to do it. I think John Gill expressed it well when he said, though it seems that all the 10,000 men were men of courage, Right, these were the 10,000 that stayed behind. And this method was taken not to distinguish those that were most courageous from those that were least so, but only to reduce the number that should be engaged in this battle. I think, I think that's what's going on here, that, this is not, uh, that, that these 300 were necessarily more virtuous men than the rest. But this is just the Lord's method of thinning down the army. At the end of the test, Gideon is left with his 300 and the ratio... Uh, with the Amalekite army is now roughly 450 to 1. I think, I think if we do the math, it boils out exactly 450 to 1. But if we may borrow the words of Jonathan from 1 Samuel 14, 6, the Lord is not restrained, save by many or few. In this case, the Lord chose the few so as to get the glory. And so it is with us as well. The Lord delights in using weak instruments so that he may get the glory. Now, let me make an important caveat in this. I don't say this in any way to encourage effeminacy among us. Not at all. As I was a boy growing up, my father used to say to my brother and I, you've got to get toughened up, boy. You've got to get toughened up. <laughs> and he would say, I want you boys to be men among men. And I'm incredibly thankful for that kind of heritage, that kind of upbringing. So far be it from me to encourage effeminacy. Far be it from me to encourage Christians to be cowards. Right? We find in Revelation that those who are cowardly not going to go into eternity in heaven. So far be it also for me to encourage the body of Christ to walk in this world with limp hands and trembling hearts. That's not the point that I'm trying to make here. But what I am saying is that God is glorified by using the weak, using the small, using those of little reputation, those who seem to be ill-fitted and ill-adept for the task at hand. God is glorified in this way. And we see, this, we see this in the scriptures. So, for instance, David. This was David in the fight with Goliath. 
Goliath was a giant and a fierce warrior. David was certainly not lacking in courage, certainly not effeminate, certainly not lacking in confidence in the Lord. He had a measure of strength and skill, but he was a boy. He killed the lion and the bear. He had not been in battle. He was untested in war. But the battle was the Lord's, and he gave David the victory, and therefore received the glory by using such an unlikely and comparatively weak instrument, at least weak in comparison to his opponent. Such a one was Paul with his thorn in the flesh. We don't know what that thorn was. Whatever it was, it wasn't pretty. It was unpleasant. It was a messenger of Satan, he says. He pleaded with the Lord for it to be taken away, and the Lord said to him, My grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. And so Paul responded by saying, Most gladly, therefore, will I rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties, for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. That's 2 Corinthians 12, 9 and 10. God is glorified by using the weak. And while we have varying levels of physical strength and stamina, and even as believers we have varying levels of spiritual stamina and strength, we need to remember that in comparison to what we're up against, we're all weak. Because as Paul tells us in Ephesians 6, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the world forces of this darkness and the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. That's, that's what we're up against. We're up against the wiles of the devil himself. Compared to that, we are weak. Now, praise God for the blessed truth that we find in 1 John, that greater is he who is in us than he that is in the world. But in ourselves, we are weak. And then on the positive side, we're commanded to bear much fruit, commanded to be perfect as our Heavenly Father is perfect. It's no sign of cowardice to be honest and acknowledge that we don't have what it takes, either to stand up against our enemies or to measure up to what is required of us, that we don't have the resources in ourselves to serve the Lord faithfully day in and day out. It's no sign of weakness to acknowledge that we don't have the strength within ourselves, within our flesh, to withstand the enemy of our souls. It's no sign of cowardice to acknowledge with the psalmist in Psalm 127, verse 1, that unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Unless the Lord guards the city, the watchman keeps awake in vain. And being weak, we therefore must be absolutely dependent on the Lord. So the Lord says in Jeremiah 17, 5, Cursed is the man who trusts in mankind and makes flesh his strength, and whose heart turns away from the Lord. The Lord detests our pride and our boastfulness. So let's be dependent on the Lord, and let's live like we're dependent on the Lord. Let's pray like we're dependent on the Lord. And I don't do that near as well as I should. But let's pray like we're dependent on the Lord. And let's make sure, as those who are dependent on the Lord, that we give all glory to Him, such that we would never say, My own power has delivered me. May we rather be like that hymnist of old, Johann Jacob Schutz, who wrote in his hymn, Sing Praise to God who reigns above these wonderful words. Let all who name Christ's holy name give God all praise and glory. Let all who own his power proclaim aloud the wondrous story. Cast each false idol from its throne, for Christ is Lord and Christ alone. To God, all praise and glory. 
This brings us to our second point, where we see that the Lord encourages and strengthens the weak. The Lord is glorified in using the weak, and he strengthens those who are weak. And we see this beginning in verse 9 and following. After his army had thus been reduced, we see how the Lord encouraged and strengthened this weak servant, strengthened him for the fight through a dream that was given to a pagan and interpreted by a pagan who gave a true interpretation of that dream. And unlike the fleece in chapter 6, it was the Lord who initiated this encouragement for Gideon, who initiated this sign for Gideon. And in doing so, we could say that the Lord made provision for Gideon's weakness. And in light of verse 10, we could say that even in making provision for Gideon's weakness, the Lord went a step further and made provision, more provision, for his weakness. Not only did the Lord tell Gideon to go down to the camp so as to to strengthen himself, but he said, if you're afraid to go down, take your servant Purah with you. This is the kindness and gentleness of God with his people. We read in Psalm 103, verses 13 and 14, that just as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he himself knows our frame. He's mindful that we are but dust. And what we see here in Judges 7 is Psalm 103 being played out in real time in Gideon's life. How gentle and kind and patient is the Lord with his weak people. We can see it in the scripture, we can see some sense of it in our own lives, but we'll never know the full extent of this until eternity. And so Gideon and Purah go down to the camp and they hear the recounting of this dream which the man had, this dream is of a barley loaf that comes tumbling into the camp, flattens and overturns this tent, and the interpretation is given for us there in verse 14. His friend replied, This is nothing less than the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, a man of Israel. God has given Midian and all the camp into his hand. Now while this may appear to be an odd vision to us, in it we see something poor and little this, this barley loaf, accomplishing something that no one would have naturally expected. A loaf of barley would have been the bread of the poor, perhaps something hastily prepared and thrown together. As far as food was concerned, it would likely have been viewed with contempt by those who were richer or had more refined culinary tastes. And a loaf is small. But this contemptible small thing comes tumbling down the hill What do you know? Knocks over the tent, flips it over. And the interpretation given by his comrade is straight to the point. This is the sword of Gideon. God has given the camp of Midian into his hand. We gather from this that the Midianites, by this point, had some inkling of who Gideon was. He must have been known to some degree among them. And it's noteworthy what Gideon does next. He worshipped God. God, we find that in verse, verse 15. When Gideon heard the account of the dream and its interpretation, he bowed in worship. God had, had strengthened Gideon by this, and Gideon responded in worship, and as we see subsequently, responded in obedience. God had raised him up for the purpose of going up against Midian. He encourages him with this. Gideon worships. Gideon obeys. And may it be so with us as well. In the dark nights when we do battle with our fears, let us make use of what the Lord has given to us. Namely, his word, his gospel, 
so that, in the words of verse 11, our hands will be strengthened. I love the way that William Romaine expressed it in his work called The Life of Faith. He said, If you are ready to say, I see clearly how I would glorify my dear Lord and how happy I would be if, I had, if my faith was but like Paul's, but I'm so weak, liable to fall, and mine enemies are so numerous and mighty that I sometimes fear... I shall never hold out unto the end. Because you are such, therefore the Lord has given you his promise that he will hold you up. You shall be safe. And this promise is part of the covenant which is ordered in all things and sure. Look at that, not at yourself. Consider the messenger of the covenant in whom it is all ordered and by whom it is sure. When your unfaithfulness would discourage you, think of his faithfulness. Let your weakness remind you of his strength. If indeed he leave you for a single moment, you will fall. But he has promised, I will never leave you. If the number and strength of your enemies make you fear, lest you should one day perish at the hand of Saul, he says to you, you shall be kept by the power of faith unto salvation. But if you are tempted to doubt, find thy revolting heart apt to turn from the Lord, he says, I will put my fear into your heart that you shall not depart from me. Observe, it is his faithfulness and power, and not yours, which keeps you. And he has covenanted to do it, and he has all power in heaven and on earth, and he has given you his promise upon promise for the establishment of your faith, that you might be certain that he will love you and keep you unto the end. Now the point of of all of that is that when we're fearful, when we're weak, when we feel like we're going to fall, Look once again to the Lord, to his strength. Look once again to the promises that that he has given us, that he will never leave us nor forsake us, that he says, I will put my fear into your heart so that you will not depart from me. This is new covenant promises, right? From, From Jeremiah 31, Jeremiah 33. These are wonderful promises. God is so gracious and merciful. And so we must look to the word of God for strength and for encouragement in our weakness. We look to his precious promises. We come to the Lord's table when we celebrate communion in the church and we're reminded of the covenant to which we belong. We're reminded afresh of the blood of the covenant, the blood of Christ poured out for the forgiveness of our sins, even our own sins. The Lord has graciously made provision for us to be strengthened in our weakness, even as he made provision for Gideon to be strengthened in his weakness. And how foolish And how devastating it would be for us to reject it, to ignore it, or just turn a blind eye to it. Rather, let us receive the encouragement that he gives. And let us do what Gideon did by responding in worship. The Lord encouraged him, and Gideon gave glory and praise to God. And may it be the same with us. This brings us then to our third point, which is the victory which the Lord brings. And we see this in verse 15 and following, how... After Gideon worshipped the Lord, he went back to the camp and leads his men down to the camp of Midian. We see the instructions that he gave them, how after the trumpets were blown, they were to say, for the Lord and for Gideon. And so they went down to the camp of Midian and carried out what we might call a shock and awe campaign. Now, obviously, this is the Lord's miraculous doing, but... Gideon and his men showed up and, and took part in the battle. And as I was, I was thinking about this, I was reminded 
of a uh, novel or historical fiction that I had read years ago, and it was a uh, kind of kind of a western. It was self-published, um, and um, but I will I will say this: it it's, it stuck with me uh, for a long time. This uh, this memorable line where the the protagonists in in this western were uh, were kind of in a tight spot, and their their opponents had had their guns drawn on them, and one of the uh, one of the protagonists said, "Oh no, oh no, ah, oh Wes, I was this. It's that donkey disease I was warning you about." And he started he started braying like like a donkey, and that distracted everybody enough a moment for one of the protagonists to, to draw his gun and therefore get themselves out of that situation. Now, back back in the day when I was teaching school, I, I told some of my students about that and said, you know, that I thought about I thought about doing that when when you guys are, are misbehaving and I need to I need to get your attention. I never did I never did actually do it, but I thought about it. And I think one of the students actually said that I should do it, but I never did. And but anyways, what we what we see here is is this this shock and awe campaign that here at ten o'clock in the night at the start of this second watch. Gideon and his 300 men show up, and then all of a sudden, out of the darkness, there's a sound of breaking pottery. 300 jars shatter, right? Out of the darkness, bam, 300 torches, light. Out of the silence, bam, a blaring of 300 trumpets. And there were men shouting, a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. Now, the Lord obviously won the victory, but Gideon and his men were there. They showed up. They were the means by which the Lord gave the victory, but it was the Lord who accomplished it. And we see this in that expression that they use there, a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. Matthew Henry wisely noted that the sword of the Lord is all in all to the success of the sword of Gideon. Yet the sword of Gideon must be employed. Men, the instruments, and God, the principal agent, must both be considered in their places. But men... The greatest and best, always in subserviency and subordination to God. Verse 22 indicates that the Lord used this shock and awe to spark great confusion and concern in the camp of Midian. Those inside the camp may have thought that those bearing the torches and the trumpets were but the leaders of a vast host, that there was a multitude of hundreds of thousands behind them. Whatever it was exactly that they were thinking, we are not told. But we are told what they did. They turned their swords against one another and they fled. This was the Lord's way of bringing about this victory. And thus the Midianites were routed. And Gideon and his men were joined by men from some of the other tribes in their pursuit of them. Their leaders, Oreb and Zeb, were killed. And Lord willing, here in a couple of weeks, we'll see the mop-up operation that continued in chapter 8. But the thing to note here is that the Lord gave the victory. He gave it in an unlikely and unexpected way so that he might be glorified in the victory. And how much more is this the case in the victory which Christ has accomplished for us? Who but God himself would have ordained such a plan of salvation as that which we have in the gospel? God delivers us from eternal death by sending his own son to die in our place. God saves us from his wrath by pouring out his wrath on his only begotten son, his sinless Christ. Jesus is crucified in weakness, and yet now through faith countless weak ones are made strong in him. Those whom 
the world regard as wise. I think this is all foolishness. But yet Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 2, 7 and 8 that, that they speak God's wisdom in a mystery. The hidden wisdom of God predestined before the ages to our glory. The wisdom which none of the rulers of this age has understood. For if they had understood it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory to the world. This was all weakness and foolishness. They didn't understand who Jesus was. They didn't understand what they were doing. But this was God's wisdom in a mystery. This is God's power which brings salvation to the weak and to the oppressed who turn to Christ in faith. And therefore it is by this wisdom and power that he delivers us even as his wisdom and power delivered the tribes of Israel at 10 p.m. around the camp of Midian. And the trumpets, which were blown by Gideon and his men, remind us that there will yet be another trumpet that will one day sound forth. We call it the last trumpet. And that trumpet will sound forth in the return of Christ, and there, this will be the, the trumpet of his final victory. We read about that in Revelation eleven fifteen and following. Then the seventh angel sounded, and there were loud voices in heaven, saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshipped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God the Almighty, the one who is and who was, because you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. And the nations were enraged, and your wrath came, and the time came for the dead to be judged, and the time to reward your bondservants, the prophets and the saints, and those who fear your name, small and the great, and to destroy those who destroy the earth. Gideon's trumpet points us forward to the last trumpet. The return of Christ, the final judgment, the vindication of God's servants. And this is good news. Suffering of Christ's people will one day be over, and we will all be brought to live in peace under his eternal rule in his eternal kingdom. And so may God teach our hearts to say, Come, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Our Father, we know that in ourselves we are weak, and yet we are often self-deceived, and we think that we are strong. Lord, we ask that you would deliver us from such deception that we would acknowledge our weakness, that we would acknowledge our need, that we would not make flesh our strength, but that our only boast would be you. Lord, we praise you that you encourage us and give us strength along the way by your precious promises and the word. Lord, we pray that we would not disregard them, but that we would make appropriate use of them. And Lord, we praise you that you bring victory. We see it here in the Old Testament. We see it in Christ and his first coming. And we know that the final victory is yet to come. But we anticipate that day. And we praise you for the certainty of this. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.